Good morning and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and every Monday morning we invite our listeners into our Liquid Market Group's Monday morning financial markets meeting to get the latest insights into the global financial markets covering all traded listed markets. Good morning, everyone. It is the 29th of June, and over the weekend we saw COVID-19 return to dominate our headlines. Markets are starting to look increasingly choppy as those two major themes start to dominate the headlines with all that stimulus versus that COVID-19 second wave. And of course, last week as well, the US Fed regulator announced a relaxation of the Volcker rule. Stuart, can I bring you to the conversation, please, and provide an update as to what this all means for investors, what's happened over the week past, and what major themes do you see occurring in the week ahead, particularly in those currency markets? Yeah, thanks, Craig. Uh, I think it's important to take a step back and just look at the quarter that we've just had because we're two days away from rounding off Q2, which has been an incredible quarter for risk assets, which of course we need to put in the context of what was an almost unprecedented drawdown in risk assets in Q1. So, so far to date, global equities have rebounded around 16% in local terms with the S&P 500 price index generating a rebound of just over that. And large tech stocks continue their stellar run, um, generating around 26% for the for the Nasdaq 100, but also positive returns from global bonds as credit performance underpins the broad bond indices. Um, bringing it back to current market conditions, we've seen a continued tension between those opposing themes that you mentioned, uh, and an alternate shift between the bull and bear thematics. Uh, just recall that the bull case for asset prices rests on the incredible amount of policy stimulus across both fiscal and monetary policy, uh, along with the rebound in economic conditions and the easing of social mobility restrictions. But the bear case is is the ongoing growth rate of new infections, which which you mentioned and which is becoming more and more amplified. Something that we mentioned last week was a risk, uh, and particularly what's being termed the second wave in the US, but also we've got that uneven and challenging economic recovery and the unhealthy level of retail speculation in some corners of the markets. That's the bull and bear cases outlined. Uh, last week, of course, we did talk about how we expected those the, the narratives to shift between those two, and, and it did play out with that, as I mentioned, with that amplification of the record number of infections in the US. And that's dragged Wall Street lower by close to 3% over the week after what was a positive start from those global uh, flash PMI numbers. Uh, looking ahead for this week, you know those competing narratives should still capture the market's attention. And there is an ongoing focus on the headlines coming out of the US, uh, particularly those states where the infection rate remains very well uncontained. Um, and in terms of how that's affecting currencies, it, it's it's really lacked direction over the last week. And there's ongoing signs that the elevated sensitivity to risk assets that we've seen through the first half of the year is starting to wane. Uh, the US dollar did manage to rally on equity weakness on Wednesday and Friday, but you've got to consider the yen actually managed to underperform through the week. And the Aussie actually managed to outperform, uh, finishing the week stronger, albeit that that was mostly due to the strong start after the RBA Governor Lowe expressed 
little concern about the the level of the Aussie. And just um, just one more thing, I guess, ahead of the looking forward ahead of this the start of this week, investors will be very mindful of the increasing rate of infections in the US, but they're also going to be uh, looking very watchful for an inflection point in new infections, just as they they were with China initially, and then with Europe, and also in that first wave in the northeast of the US, uh, constantly looking for an inflection point in new infections to feel like the coast is clear. Thanks, Stuart. And unfortunately, of course, we've clicked over the 10 million case marker for COVID-19. And unfortunately, another key levels been reached, which is we've now cleared over 500,000 deaths. So very sad from that angle. And of course, Minister Hunt uh, had the health ministers come out over the weekend, Stuart, and also reminded Australians about the importance of uh, uh, techniques with regards to trying to um, maintain the virus in our country here, given the outbreaks in Melbourne. Uh, Dr. Tony, we might bring you into the conversation here from an equities, uh, volatility and commodities point of view. Stuart mentioned before that Wall Street closed lower 3%, but of course, NASDAQ was probably the better performer during the week. Can we get an update from you, please, on how those equity markets fared last week and what major themes you're looking for in the week ahead? Yeah, that's right, Craig. Um, equity markets were down around 2 to 3% for the week uh, in the US and in Europe, uh, but they were flat uh, on the week in the Asian region. Um, in Australia, the ASX 200 did call back around 1.4% uh, on Friday uh, with financial stocks leading the, the way to finish the week uh, off 65 basis points. Um, some lo local market participants uh, did attribute that rally to uh, Fed easing of regulations on US banks uh, and thus the implications of this action on the regulators' willingness to support markets. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough for US investors uh, with the S&P 500 selling off around 2.4%. Uh, on decent volume on Friday, uh, obviously as the country continues to struggle with uh, a resurgence of the virus and what this implies for the outlook for equities in the second half of this year. Now, there was no clear evidence of panic in vol markets, uh, with the VIX moving up slightly to finish uh, Friday at 34 and three quarter vol. The index uh, implies equity market moves of around 2% per day. And so the volatility in the S&P 500 toward the back end of last week uh, is, is not completely unexpected, uh, but I do believe this tension between uh, market intervention and the realities of the pandemic uh, will continue to drive equity market uncertainty in the near term. Um, digging a little deeper, uh, there was very little sector dispersion last week. However, the energy sector was actually a big driver of the weekly underperformance in the US and in Australia. Uh, so Brent and WTI were off around 3% for the week. Uh, natural gas was off around 11.5%. Uh, in precious metals, both gold and silver were up on the week. Um, gold has actually been tracking the general direction taken by the S&P 500 since March of this year. Um, Bloomberg also reported uh, holdings of uh, you know, gold bullion backed ETFs uh, swelling to a record. Uh, last week, there was a clear divergence of performance with gold uh, continuing to rally 1.6% despite the S&P selling off. Uh, and, and finally, just note that there is a holiday in the US on Friday ahead of Independence Day. Thanks, Tony. Uh, Paul, could we please bring you into the conversation now with regards to US, Europe, uh, emerging market and Australian rates, uh, inflation, any key economic data? I know that we had the updates from the PMI last week. We also had those Fed stress mm. test uh, results as well. So can you bring us up to speed, please, and what this means for investors? 
Yeah, thanks, everybody. Um, essentially, the same thing went through markets and bond markets essentially manifested itself in a bull flattener. Um, I think the major, what, what was really interesting, particularly on Friday, what we actually saw was uh, personal income and spending. And um, it brings into this idea, this fiscal cliff that we're going to face, you know, the very much political aspect of terms of payouts and, um, uh, you know, keeping that personal income elevated. So if you look at what happened on Friday, actually, you know, if we look at the one-time stimulus checks without that, real personal income would have fallen 5% since February. Instead, it's actually rose 9%. So as these sort of stimulus checks start to roll off and this fiscal response starts to become a little easier as the are the politicians, you know, do they have the same onus? Do they have the same impetus to, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to actually uh, start writing these checks again? If not, we actually have about an 8% uh, gap within the income uh, area in the US coming up this summer. I think it also brings up what you mentioned, Craig, you know, the PMIs last week. We had Europe outperforming with the U.S. sort of slightly disappointing in terms of the PMIs. And there's been a bit of a discussion, given the size and numbers, your scale of the data collection, and obviously with the problems of the data collection in terms of being able to, to get it with a greater certainty, the, the, the Europeans have actually started to uh, show some actual improvement and, and sort of going ahead of of us in terms of the growth in terms of that not v-shape but certainly that tick up that we'd be expecting sort of later in the year and one way that's really manifests itself in europe we tick uh we, we we pay a lot of attention to the money supply growth it's a transition mechanism that works very effectively in europe and it gives us some very good signs and we've seen a real acceleration of m1 growth um now which would indicate quite a good acceleration for late 2020 and into 2021. So I thought that was an interesting um, divergence between the signals we're seeing in Europe and the signals we're actually seeing in, in, in the US at this point. Um, moving on, um, supply uh, this 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 week um, is going to be relatively quiet. Actually, there's no supply uh, of US Treasuries at all. This week, um, you know, that's on the back of, you know, we actually got about 8 billion coupons. and So we got about 100 billion of net purchases this week in U.S. Treasury. So there's some big numbers for us. And of course, in Europe, it's a very similar fashion, but much less so um, with um, some Italy, France and Spain issuance this week, mainly um, on the back of ECB purchases, of course, though, and redemptions, that still is a very strong net uh, positive what will be interesting this week as well is we've got a lot of speakers, a lot of speakers from the Fed, a lot of speakers from uh, the ECB as well. Uh, they're split right across the week. We've got EU PMIs this Friday. We've got um, China PMI. I think it's tonight, actually. Um, so that'll be interesting to watch out. And of course, later in the week, we have um, uh, before the close Wednesday, we've got a bit of manufacturing, non-manufacturing. Uh, to come out in the US. So those will all be very interesting data points to watch and to see if we can get some clarity on this uh, challenging sort of environment. And of course, you mentioned the, the Volcker Rules and Stress Test come out last week. Uh, uh, just to finish off for me, um, 
essentially for the first time ever, the Fed has actually asked all the banks to resubmit their capital plans. And this is on the back of uh, new assumptions that they've made. So they've made new stress tests with new assumptions. Given what's happened in COVID, I think that's that's fair enough. You know, there's a lot of things that that have happened in the last few months that we wouldn't expect to maybe even be in the stress test, let alone um, be in the worst case scenario. So that'll be interesting to see. Thanks, Paul. Uh, and Richard, we're bringing you to the conversation now with regards to macro credit. Paul just mentioned then the Fed regulators easing that Volcker rule. And this week, we've also been discussing the lack of, I suppose, market clear market direction in, in the markets with regards to pricing. So how have the credit markets reacted and, and how do you see them reacting this week as well, Richard? Yeah, thanks, Craig. Look, the choppiness seen in other markets that you kind of alluded to has also been uh, present in credit markets also. But what we have seen is we've seen credit outperform and and particularly versus equities. So if you take June as an example and and using US credit as a strong proxy, um, IG Corps have had a total return of around 1.8%. And this is versus the S&P 500, which is down 1.4%. And, you know, and as we've been talking about for a long time now, we think credit can continue to outperform. And, and can provide strong risk-adjusted returns moving forward. And the reasons for this, again, as we've as we have talked about a little bit, you know, the reach for yield driven by low rates and accommodative central banks, you know, and and as well as supportive um, supply demand dynamics. Just touching on supply demand, um, strong demand looks likely to continue for credit. And actually, last week we had the second highest inflow ever into IG credit funds in the US of um, 12.85 billion. And then in primary, we expect this to sort of decline further in the US. Um, we've got Independence Day holiday this week, and so we should only see about 10 to 15 bill of new volume for, for this week. And that's a lot lower than the 30 to 50 we've been typically seeing each week. Um, and we think this will trend lower. Um, you know, particularly over the Northern Hemisphere summer, which um, is seasonally you do see lower issuances, you know, the Northern Hemisphere goes on holiday. But also, you know, as we've discussed, the front loading of, um, of issuance seen in the first half of 2020. And then uh, finally, locally, over the last week, we've seen Aussie credit spreads do, do really well, actually. And the, the main driver of this has been new primary issuance that we haven't seen as much in, in Australia. And, you know, this new primary issuance has been very, very well supported and has actually repriced secondary spreads tighter. So, for instance, we saw a Brisbane Airport deal last week, uh, three times oversubscribed and priced 60 basis points tighter than, than that initial price talk. So that was really positive um, for all non-financial credit in in. Aussie last week. And, you know, we do think um, non-financial Australian credit has room to tighten and outperform as it has lagged a little bit um, offshore counterparts. But, you know, as always here, strong bottom-up analysis, you know, is definitely needed to, to find the winners and losers. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Pat, we might uh, finish off with an update, please, with regards to the Qantas uh, announcement that was released last week. What does that mean for investors from your point of view, please? Yeah, hi, Craig. Um, I mean, from in a nutshell, very positive from a bondholder point of view. Um, so we had Qantas out last week announcing their latest response to the pandemic. That included a substantial equity raising alongside a three-year recovery plan targeting quite significant cost savings. Um, 
The equity raising was for $1.9 billion in total. That comprised $1.4 billion in fully underwritten institutional placement plus a $500 million uh, share purchase plan. Um, that institutional placement was done on Thursday at 12.9% uh, discount to Wednesday's close. Although you can you can see as of Friday, Qantas shares trading 4% higher than that, suggesting it was reasonably well received by equity holders. Um, Qantas, as part of the announcement, also confirmed that the equity raising will take its liquidity position to $4.6 billion on a pro forma basis. And that's before the share purchase plan, which could add another half a billion. Um, they previously told the market their net cash burn rate under current conditions is $40 million per week. And while I didn't provide an update on that last week, the cost savings announced as part of the recovery plan, which amounted to $15 billion over three years, are clearly intended to variableize the cost base and provide the group with flexibility to respond to a range of possible scenarios that could be a faster recovery or a, or a slower one. Um, so as I said, from a debt holder perspective, the equity raising along with the other actions, which, which also, by the way, included um, a two, a, um, confirmation that 201 million interim dividend wouldn't be paid. So they're clearly positive, clearly credit positive, and we have seen spreads on Qantas bonds tighten over the last few days in response. But just at, at a high level, I think it's worth noting the action taken by Qantas to raise liquidity and protect its balance sheet is just another example of the bondholder-friendly dynamic that we've seen more broadly. And it also plays into that overweight credit macro view that Richard spoke to earlier. Thanks, Pat, for that very timely and interesting update with regards to the Qantas review and obviously something that's captured the, the nation's headlines over the weekend. And with a clear focus globally to also bring that second wave of COVID-19 under control, particularly leading to the US at long weekend, along with the continuing work of the financial regulators and stimulus measures, there's a lot of new information to drive our financial markets going forward. Thank you, everyone, for your contributions this morning. Thank you to our listeners for tuning into our Monday morning Market Moments podcast, and please have a great week ahead.